0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Pamela Smith, Seth Lowe Professor of History and Director of the Center for Science and Society at Columbia University in New York to talk about her new book, From Lived Experience to Written Word, Reconstructing Reconstructing Practical Knowledge in the Early Modern World, out this year, 2022, from the University of Chicago Press. Hello, Pamela. How are you? I am feeling well. Thank you. Wonderful. We were just noting it's a rough time of the semester. It's the time when it all comes to life. but That's true. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's this is when we earn our money right this is this is the part that's actually work all right um and how's new york this morning oh beautiful
2: new york is beautiful in the winter fall win- well especially in the fall but it's gotten really cold but it's clear bright the sun is bright but that's the great thing about new
1: york it has lots of light ah brilliant. and it's and, and you know yeah that's a lot of city to be right outside your door that's quite <laughs> nice yeah um so let's turn our attention to the subject at hand, this gorgeous volume from lived experience to the written word. Uh, you know, I generally get PDFs from the press and I'm perfectly happy with that. Um, no problem. So I was pleasantly surprised when Chicago sent me like a physical copy across the sea. Um, and then I went from surprised to like, elated when I actually got my hands on the book. It is gorgeous. Um, so listeners, this is not an audiobook, and you do not want to read this on your phone. If you're going to do, if you're going to read it on an e-device, maybe iPad size. It is so beautiful. You want to hold it. It's a tome, feel it's thick, thick, slick pages and gaze lovingly at the dozens of illustrations. Um, absolutely love this. So much fun and just so much fun to just hold and feel and look at as well. So the issue at hand here is that around the year 1400, artists and craftspeople began writing little books of art, which served as instructional manuals.
2: Yeah. Well, they served a lot of purposes. I would say not primarily instructional manuals. Um, They were claims to knowledge. They often were making an argument. They could be a collection of recipes. They could be a claim to a kind of knowledge that hadn't been written down or, or was difficult to write down in any case. Um, so they, they weren't primarily instructional. I mean, that's the thing is that they're often referred to as how-to books. Um, but But really, it's very hard to teach anyone how to do something complicated in writing. I mean, think about you know riding a bicycle you could never learn that from right from from a book right from just reading about it so um so how to instructional the kind of didactic aims are are pretty much a misnomer not always but but Mm -hmm. these little books are doing more and that's one of the arguments I make in the book
1: um, yeah, I mean women, you, you make this clear that writing instructional like writing and writing these little things um manual like written instructions for things that are meant to be done manually um, is counterintuitive and cumbersome at best right um and maybe not the best way to go about it so so why are they written down like why why did people start doing it then why, why why give me the why tell me how to make? Copper or something. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, copper, right? Yeah. That's a that's the question of the book. Like why try? <laughs> yeah. And I think that primarily it comes out of the long, you know, millennia long history of the um in the hierarchy of knowledge, which is that mind. Um in most written cultures that have a written tradition comes to be superior to the hand and part of that is because writing uh, you know seems to present a clearer course a kind of shortcut to knowledge um, than learning embodied experience which cannot be learned except by doing it over long years Um, so that you know the skills that can be um, gained in um, you know by learning through through written texts are different than the skills that can be gained um, through you know learning a practice. So the question is, um, you know, I mean the 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 point about that is that um, that embodied knowledge hasn't really been given the due even today that deserves or you know that mm. it's merits because because of this problem of the the shortcut of writing right that that it can't be written down in its entirety it can't be appreciated in writing and it can't be learned from writing um, so so you know artisans are, because increasing literacy among artisans increasing desire to, um, to, uh, gain intellectual and social distinction, you know, a whole complex of factors that led to their making claims about their knowledge, saying this is a kind of knowledge and I can tell you a theory about my skill in it. Um, so many of them are making an argument in that vein, a claim to knowledge. Um, others are making that claim in terms of how useful um, this kind of knowledge is to centralizing states at the time, to centralizing governa- governments. Um, so, so there are many. Some are saying this will reform knowledge. You know, if we if we um, pay more attention to embodied knowledge, this will reform our, you know, not only the knowledge hierarchies, but actually, you know, bring about an intellectual reform that could also be a social and religious reform. So so there are lots of ways in which embodied knowledge, in which craft is being um, argued for, used, and read. Um, and so artisans who wrote were... In, in part, taking part in those kinds of um, developments and arguments for what they did, for their practical knowledge.
1: Um, I was recently in conversation with Kathy McClive, who just translated um, an early modern midwifery text. And we ended up spending a lot of time talking about the sociability of knowledge, right? The idea that in the early modern period, the medieval and early modern period, um, knowledge is uh, created in conversation in households with neighbors with peers, um, just as much as it's handed down in any kind of hierarchical way. Um, and i I've continued to think about that. And I thought about that a lot while I was reading this book as well. Um, how is is this part of that kind of conversation? Is this a demonstration of that sociability of knowledge? How do I how do I make sense of man, of these kind of books?
2: Yes, very much so. In part, it's a, it's about the sociability of knowledge in the sense that um, Pamela Long has talked about as well in her work um, on artisan practitioners in the scientific revolution um, and in all of her texts, really, is just how much craft knowledge became, um, you know, was articulated in, as she calls it, a trading zone between people who were interested in it for governmental reasons, for, you know, intellectual reform reasons, um, for effective knowledge uh, reasons to build things, to make things, and um, how much it was articulated within a dynamic reciprocal trading zone of ideas um, to bring about a new culture of, of knowledge that involved both mind and hand. So, you know her work has very much shown that, and and I, you know I'm building on that work or contributing to that kind of understanding of why this knowledge was articulated at this time. So an easy example of that kind of um, that kind of relationship is just how much patrons of artworks, you know, the wealthy clergy or or nobility who were commissioning artworks did it in conversation with, um, and eventually often through a kind of contractual arrangement um, with the artist who would make their, their commission. Um, So that, that kind of um, relationship often, often, you know, involving some sort of power relate dynamic as well, um, which Uh, You know, is part of that, the way in which craft came to be articulated, it had to have an audience, right? Why? (laughs) And that audience is in, is in, um, is in a relationship with those books, right? And in large measure with those craftspeople as well. Um, And so that's why these books, you know, formulated within that idea of a reciprocal social relationship, or at least a social relationship, whether it was, you know, entirely reciprocal in terms of power is another question, um, but why that gave rise
1: to an argument in the text, right? Yeah. I I mean, because it seems like, there's an argument to be made that having these books is creating an idea of the lone genius or it could be a hierarchical kind of a situation. Um, but that isn't what I'm reading, right? I'm reading that there's more of a conversation, that there's something ongoing.
2: Um Yes, I mean there's there is a conversation now. Someone like Benvenuto Cellini was per- selling himself to his prince, right? I mean, he was advertising his skills to the to the King of France, for example, um, and so he is making an argument about his special um, virtuosity, about his special skill, um, his secrets, his his genius, his ingenium. He probably made it in those terms, um, so so you you have both. I mean that that is a that is a an argument about what is possible for work of the hand. It can be this kind of genius. It can actually involve you know mental conceptualization. It can involve all of the kinds of rhetorical um, aspirations of you know a textually trained orator for example i mean all of those important skills sometimes were put like genius like ingenium were put in terms of what an artist could do and that also is an argument about what the the status of embodied knowledge of craft so So, yes, those two things can exist together, you know, that social environment, that reciprocal, that back and forth relationship between a patron and an artist or between a scholar and an artist. But the artist can be by the by virtue of that, Mm -hmm. talking about his individuals and um, skill or genius, individual ability to take part Mm -hmm. in the practice of the
1: liberal arts right okay cellini seems like a perfect example of of kind of what this genre can be right and and it's it's a it's also a very good read. It's really entertaining, right. Do so you want right. to read his
2: autobiography is very much It was not actually published until the nineteenth century, but um better known in the sixteenth century was his two treatises on metalworking mm-hmm. a- on goldsmithing and metalworking. and And that too, makes an argument, but very much more in the kind of book that I'm looking at in this book, which is a a book of looks like how to do things. Um, a book of, we could call them recipes, um, a book on, you know, how to actually make things. And when I'm saying how to, I know I'm contradicting what I said at the beginning, that these are, you know, it's just a language, it's really hard to figure out, because he is talking about how to make things. But, you know, you could not actually, just by reading without the skill, make those things yourself. So, Um, yeah so we kind of have to separate instruction from from how to you know that's the paradoxical thing about about these texts um, which is a problem that I deal with throughout the book Mm
1: -hmm. yeah uh, and like what how they read what they're possible for what um, that I mean often it seems that you're—they're telling you how to make a treatise on metalworking without with which you cannot do metalworking like that alone without being there. That's not going to make sense to you. So actually, I want to stop. Step back for a second. I usually start these interviews by asking out authors how they came to write their books, but I want—I um, wanted to wait until we kind of talked about this book, and the that process of being embodied, but also that this is um, this is a written exchange of an, a discussion of an embodied practice. Um, so we could talk so I could ask you. So your publication record, which includes award winning monographs, The Business of Alchemy, Science and Culture in the Holy Roman Empire, The Body of the Artisan, um, and then this series of beautifully curated edited volumes tells the story of an historian interested in the intersection of science and culture. But then there's this other facet of your intellectual life, which is fascinating and seems so cool, um, which we see exemplified in the Making and Knowing project, um, which is very hands on. And so I see th- I see very clearly how this comes out of that intersection, um, these, and it seems to sit at the intersection of lived experience of science and craft and culture. Um, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's that's great. I mean. I, I really came to realize in
2: writing my first book, book The Business of Alchemy, that, which was developed out of my dissertation, um, PhD dissertation, I, I really came to realize how this power that Johann Joachim Becher, the protagonist of that, of that book... Um, An alchemical and economic writer. Um, You know, how do those two things go together was my um, was the question I asked as I learned more about Becher while doing my research and and I realized just how interested he was in the knowledge that what he called the Kunst of the artisans that actually made all of the things and were the alchemical laboratory <laughs> workers um, uh, that he proposed to, you know, several different um, territorial lords um, during the 17th century. Um, and and just how how powerful that knowledge was. And so that's then why I wrote the body of the artisan, because I wanted to think about um, this knowledge, that power of art um, work of the human hand at this time. How was it seen? And so I wrote the body of the artisan. And um, then after I finished it, you know, it, I, and in which I talked about, I talk about this in the foreword of the um, From lived experience, Um, but uh, the I realized I had dealt with those artists and artisans' arguments about you know their claims to knowledge in these books, right? And I came to see you know what what the form of those claims were and what the aim of those claims were, but. I didn't really know what the content of their knowledge was, <laughs> and and so I realized I had to actually learn it in some way, and the question was, how do you learn it? Now, now it seems obvious to me, but at that time, I <laughs> thought, okay, I can read their recipe books, right? I can read these how-to manuals. I can read the collections of recipes. I can read the technical manuals, which I started doing. But you know they're very detailed. It's really hard to know what is it that you're looking for. You know you can look at the aim of it. You can make if you know it's somebody like Palissy C who mainly makes claims and doesn't actually tell you how things are done. Um, he makes claims about natural knowledge and his his ability to gain natural knowledge. Um, it's easy as a scholar to read those texts. They seem like, you know, other kinds of texts. Um, and, uh, and so I realized that this was not actually, I didn't know, still, I didn't know what this knowledge was and I didn't, you know, I tried to kind of figure out, were there, were there categories that I could draw out of it that were important? And to a certain extent, this from lived experience to the written word is a kind of record of that journey because I wrote it over this very long period and, um, and that journey of coming to understand how to approach this knowledge, how to understand it and how to, how to learn it, I guess, or what the content of it is, um so so i went from like reading these texts trying to draw out certain kinds of features categories trying to understand them in a very kind of propositional knowledge way um and then i realized that it was just impossible for me to understand a lot of them without having some experience of it myself and so that's when i really realized that i had to start um well, first I thought I will talk to people who are expert in these techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually that was I went to the VNA. I also talk about this in the in the in the introduction. I, I went to the VNA and I talked to conservators and curators and that was wonderful, but I mean it's a huge public museum, very busy people. They said, "Look, you—you know—to learn this, you really have to go and try and learn it." So, so that's what I did. I took a historical techniques of painting class. I took a historical techniques of silversmithing, blacksmithing. Um, you know, I didn't become expert in any of these, but I did get a sense of the techniques, the the behave, the properties of materials, and um, it w- gave me a lot of. I mean a lot of insight into what kind of knowledge this is. And so, you know, I feel funny saying that because it's so obvious to any of the people I worked with, you know, that in terms of those those expert practitioners, any of them will say, yes, of course, what an elementary um, observation, what an elementary, you know, revelation this is. But, you know, I think that I'm a textually trained scholar. I'm a historian who thinks that books, you know, who thought that the written record was how, you know, was the empirical database of history. And and I've come to see how wrong that was um, for the kinds of things I was trying to understand. And that's what gave rise to the Making a Knowing project because I realized two things in order to understand this fascinating intriguing text msfr 640 16th century manuscript that forms a underpinning of this of of my book Um, in order to understand it i needed to have a collaborative research group who would be able to you know um actually try out these hundreds and hundreds 927 entries in the text Um, i could never do it on my own on the one hand, and, um, on the other hand to, uh, to really, um, now I've lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> I had two points I was making. One was about founding the making and knowing project. Oh. And the other one is to try to, uh, you know, I came in doing the making and knowing project. I came to realize how much it was incredibly Effective pedagogically. And I have, uh, I was on a, an art, histo- art history graduate student's um, dissertation committee, worked closely with her in the Making and Knowing Project. And she has gone on to teach high school. She teaches European history to middle school and high schoolers. And she is able to do it um, through hands on activities you know, and it's so gripping to these students. I'm sure they remember it. They remember the points. So, you know, just how much and this this kind of knowledge can be effective in teaching, not just, you know, craft knowledge or recipes or history of science or art history, but just how effective it can be in teaching. And, you know, I'm not saying I invented this. This is like a long tradition of saying how, you know, handwork can be can be really formative in in education, um, but, but, you know, I'm saying it again to a, to the university community, which, you know, it's not exactly the center
1: of hands-on work. No. I mean, and it's not without controversy, this idea that you can by that, that, that making something in a, a historical methods to, you know, painting could be an insight into the past. That's not without controversy.
2: Definitely not. Um, although I think that it is... It is far more accepted now in um, in several different fields, I think, in art history, in history of science, in in archaeology, in anthropology, that there's just been a lot of work um, in the last 20 years, really. Um, There was work before that that really paved the way for um, the last 20 years of work. Uh, And I think that, you know, it's seen to be a a very useful technique for for Mm -hmm. several fields um, and to give a lot of insight. But the argument really that I'm making in from lived experience to the written word is that um, uh, that for looking at these kinds of texts like recipe texts or how to texts um, that. It's really, in order to understand the claims that are being made or to understand that even just the processes that are being discussed, it's really pretty essential to understand the material experience, the embodied experience. And that that this informs the art history. It informs the history of science. You know, two fields I care passionately about and I'm just kind of shocked that people didn't realize this sooner. But I also understand that, you know, to get into the university, in order to become a university subject, they kind of had to shed those um, hands, the the work of the hand. You know, it had to be separated out. And, and now we're coming back to it. Um, so... So, yes, it's not without controversy and it's certainly not without pitfalls, pitfalls that I talk about in the last two chapters of the book. um, You know, you you, reconstruction is not a is not, you know, any sort of authentic experience of the past, just like researching historical documents is not an authentic experience of the past. But but reconstruction can be a tool in the toolbox of a historian.
1: Um. Yeah, uh, this idea. I'm interested in this idea that you have to separate. The university is based on the idea that there's a life of the mind and this hierarchy of separating the mind and the hand, and then pulling them back together. Now it feels kind of nice. You know, it feels beautiful. Um, like some kind of completion. I don't know. <laughs> Um, well, it's
2: not that the university, I mean, since the 19th century, when, you know, scientific research entered the university and laboratories came into the university, I mean, that's hands on, that's hands on knowledge. Um, so, so, you know, it's not across the board, but certainly historians, humanities, um, art history, um, you know, they, they do separate the mind and the hand.
1: philosophy. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and I think there is a hierarchy there. Still, there oh. is an idea that there's a purity to mm-hmm. there's a purity to physics. Um, if as it's, opposed, theoretical. if it's theoretical, absolutely. If right?
2: it's theoretical, it's at the top of the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, an interesting thing is something like surgery, which went from an apprenticeship trained handwork, you know, practitioner based mm-hmm. to become kind of the preeminent um, you know, intellectual and um, uh, social hierarchy in medicine at the top of the social hierarchy of medicine. It's a very, it, you know, that's a interesting. So it's not yeah. across the board. Medicine was always a kind yeah. of, um, you know, as as it was said in the Middle Ages, an adulterate science. <laughs> um So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting relationship. It's one that goes, I mean, I guess the thing to say about it is that it's a relationship that goes on today. You know, it's still a fraught relationship as you're pointing to.
1: Yeah. Um, And one of the things I found also very interesting about this was just how much information is not siloed. Um, That is to say, there's a wide variety of material found in these texts in ways that, you know, doesn't fit our modern conception of disciplines. Um, right. I where would you, where does the modern librarian shelf your man, this manuscript? Yeah. yeah.
2: Right? Well, it's like any early modern, um, you know, treatment of ideas about nature, ideas about humanity. I mean, knowledge was not siloed into disciplines in the, in the period before really the 19th century. Um, so, uh, it, you know, that is also part of the point that I wanted to make is that early moderns did not see, you know, a difference between nature and culture in the way that we have, or at least, you know, the public sees by and large. Um, maybe, I hope, before the climate crisis, <laughs> you know, maybe now in the face of the climate crisis, they see the imbrication of human and natural, um, history. Um, but, uh, you know, in the period that I'm dealing with the 16th and the 17th century, largely in this book, um, they, they did not see knowledge as um, siloed into separate areas with separate experts. Um, Although craft, I mean, embodied practices and the creation of objects was, uh, was something that was pretty separate. I mean, was separate from the university. I mean, from, from scholars, um, so, you know, trained and Now, you know, there are, of course, moments that, oh, there are so many things I could have put in this book that I didn't. Um, For example, you know, um, uh, Protestant attitudes to handwork and how important they were for in some, among some groups, um, and just how much that also influenced um, ideas about nature and human relationships. Um, So, you know, their whole fields of showing the ways in which those um um that that relationship was thought about differently in the early modern period in the period before you know 1800 maybe 1850 um that i just that just cannot be i mean it's a huge narrative and it's not part of this book unfortunately
0: yeah slash /nbn50 to get 50% off. Um, um is can
1: the Protestant question I think is is one of the things I want to think yeah. about though. It's like you know who's writing these where is there can we make some generalizations like about the authors in general like these authors are they are there more Protestant than Catholic works are there do you see more in the south or the north is there anything kind of that we can say Who's, who's writing these books, I guess, is my first question.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it is interesting to think about that question. I don't think that you can say that there are more texts um, um, in the South than the North or in the North and the South. I mean, you know, it, art theory definitely is something that you can, you know, you see an emerging genre and emerging um you know, texts in Italy in the, you know, from 1400 on. Um, But then you have this incredible statement of a theory of skill in Albrecht Durer, you know, I mean, in the north, and in the body of the artisan, I did argue that um, claims to knowledge were um, those, you know, written claims to knowledge, such as, or or object claims to knowledge, such as those made by by um, Wenzel Jamnitzer and Albrecht Durer and Bernard Palissy, that this was something typical of the North, partly because it was, a, it also involved the representation of nature, you know, craft guilds um, were stronger in the north. Um, by and large, um, you can't make you know total generalizations about that, though. Um, and I think that the um, that the the centralization of power in um, city, in cities, in um, in Italy was much, happened much earlier, and therefore artisans were appealing to noble patrons to, um, and, you know, there was always the possibility of an artisan being freed. Um, You know, a free artisan could work for a noble, could be work outside of guild regulations. Um, So those dynamics, too, played into possibly the... The you know the longer um, corporate identity perhaps that northern artisans had may be helped by the fact that you know Bernard Palissy was um, felt very deeply about his um, religious identity and so um, that may have also played a role but I don't see that as the determinative. Mm-hmm um role. I think it has much more to do with power dynamics between the corporate body of the guild and the centralizing um governance of, you know, city republics and territories.
1: So really the formula for getting for getting these, for producing these is a, a, re, a wealthy patron. And you, you mean for producing the, the, the these the books. Or like uh, or no, the because, no. no,
2: because um because juror I mean, Albrecht Dürer was, um, I mean, he certainly had a wealthy interlocutor and patron in Perkheimer, but, but he was not necessarily writing for Perkheimer. You know, other um, practitioners who wrote were, were tried to stay clear of. um, So, I mean, there is a new dynamics tried to, sorry, I should finish my sentence, tried to stay clear of, um, of, individual princes. They saw that as like the golden chains of servitude. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but there is another development happening, which is printing and the the power of, um, Mm -hmm. of um, printers. And what I mean by that is how much printers had to make (laughs) a living. And, you know, a increasingly, um, although not really until the late, you know, 17th century um could people make a living from publishing from writing books um but that became part of the dynamic of um you know the striving after livelihood was also to um to write and therefore to both advertise your skills but potentially also work together with a printer um or some sort of return. Now that's a, that's something that could be studied much more thoroughly, which I do not do in this book is that relationship between artisans and printers.
1: Mm-hmm. So kind of, I've got a good idea about the authors of who's writing, what they're writing about, where are they going? Who, who's, who's, produ- who's uh, consuming these?
2: Yes. I have a whole um, chapter on the audience for these texts. And I, um, they seem, you know, you can look at how do you get evidence of that? You know, you can look at um, marginalia in the books, evidence of what readers thought. Um, You can um, look at library inventories um, um, from the past. And I do all of those things, um, you know, to try to make a broad argument about just how broad this appeal of these texts were, because They could be used um, and they were used and often included an argument in so many ways about governance, about Mm -hmm. religious reform, about pedagogical reform that would lead to intellectual reform that would lead to, you know, a better society that they could that this was a you know, this was powerful knowledge of how to produce things that was certainly recognized that that relationship between Between the, you know, nature and the human hand, that is, what was the power of nature and how could humans um, imitate it and harness it? You know, became one of the driving questions of the new philosophy. You know, as articulated by, let's say, Francis Bacon and the and the members of the early Royal Society, they really saw this link between the power of making things and the and the power of the state. Um, and so, you know, the utility for human use. So, how could humans? What was the human capacity to? to imitate nature or to learn from nature or to intervene in nature to produce a new material world. Um, And that is, I think, is the really the driving force of both the collection of objects, the patron, the patronage of artisans is what is the relate, the question, what is the relationship between nature the powers of nature and the powers of the human hand the artifice of nature and the artifice of the human hand so so you know that is a very big idea that can attract a lot of people and that's you know and those people are distributed you know they're mainly scholars interested in the new Mm -hmm. philosophy or um, patrons or members of government Um, uh, officers of government, um, and, you know, even bishops, um, you know, church clergy, I mean, these are the people at a higher social, I mean, they are of a higher social level that, you know, these books are found. Now, the problem with that evidence, of course, is that their library catalogs and inventories survive. So, you know, there's a a problem of Mm -hmm. sources here also. Um, but, the, but certainly the way in which those kinds of um, individuals talked about art, talked about the power of art, um, indicates that that's, that's the overarching interest that's the kind of umbrella of interest that um, that, gave it, the, what, that formed the audience, or at least the imaginary of the audience of these books for mm-hmm. these books. So, I show that in two chapters. One is the audience for the books, and then the second one is about collecting objects, the Kunstkammer, the collection of um, the Chamber of Arts um, collection.
1: I would like to hear more about the Chamber of Arts. If you don't yeah. want. Oh, yeah. there's so much to say about it. <laughs> and, um,
2: yeah, I would say that, you know,
1: the so, oh, where do I start? (laughs) Like the idea of maybe, um, I'm interested in how we're consuming knowledge and consuming the products of knowledge and how that then becomes also a a repository for sharing knowledge, right? These is as libraries or classrooms, I don't know, that's not the right Right. term. Right.
2: Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, I I have a, (laughs) Short analysis of in the book of um, Samuel Kiekeberg's um, amphitheat, Amphitheatrum of Knowledge, in which he describes, you know, how a, a noble person or a statesperson should collect objects and what should, you know can be included. And then he has a section on the kinds of institutions that should also be included. Um, a library, uh, laboratories, um, you know a pharmacy. Um, and so you know the actual work of the human hand should be should be carried out um, to produce things um, in order to really it was completely integrated it was to be an integrated kind of program to go with not that he articulated this entirely, but he said these are essential essentially essential parts of making a collection um and you know what was that for he was writing this for um you know uh he was employed as the librarian um in Bavaria of the Bavarian duke and um, it was for uh, It was for, you know, all kinds of things, representing the power of the Duke. It was for um, demonstrating, you know, the reach of knowledge across the world. It was for, um, you know, understanding secrets of nature, generation, and so on. Um, And, but it all was for the purpose of, Um, creating prudence or, you know, giving the knowledge of prudence to the prince. Now, what does prudence mean at this time? It means knowing how to, you know, carry oneself, how how to govern oneself and how to govern others. It was the knowledge of experience, of human experience, the gathered together you know, through the records of how humans behaved, but written down by historians, um, in order to know how to govern oneself and to govern others. And so this knowledge was seen to be central, the knowledge of the Kunstkammer, the relationship between nature and art, nature and the human hand, was seen to be of central um, utility to, you know, the state or the individual ruler. So, so that's in, you know, I would say that that's probably the most important feature or, you know, idea that animated um, the Kunstkammer. That animated the collection of objects, but then there are, of course, many other things like desire and, you know, a kind of creating a macrocosm mm-hmm. um, of the world, um, imperial reach, demonstrating at the at the level of, you know, the king of Spain or the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, um, the reach of of empire of power. Um, so, so you know, there's a lot to say within that. Um, of what a Kunstkammer, you know, there's much more to say about a Kunstkammer, as I guess I want to say, but I would say that that is one of the most important ideas that most people don't think about because, you know, there are a lot of very strange things in a Kunstkammer, a lot of like intertwining of natural objects and human art. Mm-hmm. Um, and another f- function of them was to stimulate conversations on on that relationship between human uh, between natural things and, and nature and human
1: capacity Mm -hmm. and God and 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 just generally power I'm seeing a lot of dialectic here a lot of ways that um, these objects both are created their art but they're also a status symbol and they're a way to learn and a way to teach. These they seem to be just very util and interesting. Kind of yeah, really, really them.
2: interesting. And I think a great kind of, um, it gives great insight into, you know, what the relationship between um, nature and humans was at that specific historical moment.
1: Um, so you, I mean, there, there's a couple things that run through the whole of this, but you consulted many, 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 many books. Yes, many written texts. Um, are any of these available for our listeners?
2: Well, the first written text that I would like to make better known is the, um, this, this, intriguing, phenomenal, remarkable manuscript from around from the end of the 16th century that um, I did not discover, I, but certainly it had not been studied um, in depth. Um, BNF, that is from the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, um, uh, MSFR 640. And that is the text that uh, contains about a third of it is on life casting. I was very interested in casting from life. Should I explain what casting from life is? That is a
1: very good idea, actually. That would be a wonderful place to go. So
2: um, casting from life is a technique of making very, very, I mean, exact molds of an animal or a plant by... Um, picking the plant or killing the animal gently so that you don't make any marks on it um, and then uh, molding it in plaster making a mold from its actual body usually um, posed in some way um, in some lifelike looking way um, and then you burn out or remove the animal the or, or the plant the organic material and um, You know, you can burn it out of the mold and it just turns into ashes, which you can generally blow out. And then you pour metal or some other, you know, fixed um, substance into that mold and you get a very, um, you know, beautiful and very lifelike um, animal or plant, which, you know, preserves the ephemeral thing, you know, for a much longer time. So this was a very popular technique, Um, and what I mean by that is that it was practiced a lot in in the 16th century. It went had you know origins much earlier, but it really kind of came to um, came to really grew in the 16th century. Um, There are many records of and also extant objects um, that were made by life casting in European museums today and in early modern collections. So, um, so for the body of the artisan, I had thought about life casting in terms of the representation of nature, which I was in that book, I, I um, made the argument that that was a claim about natural knowledge you know to be able to produce these exact representations was about that um, that uh, knowledge of nature that artisans claim to have um, as the basis of their um, of their power to produce and um, and so I, I talked about this. I started looking at this text at that time but um but before I finished that book, I really had only very little experience- i mean I really hadn't studied the text um and so that's what I set out to do as soon as I finished that book and, and published it in two thousand four and um i i you know I transcribed, began to translate, et cetera, et cetera. But I just could not understand it because it was, first of all, it's not a straightforward text. It has many, many loop like many of these texts. It, it leaves out so much because, of course, how can you write down everything in, in terms of making something, right? Because it's a very complex process. It changes all the time. It changes in real time. You know, if you're, if you're not using standard materials, you have a different outcome every time you know, this still happens in cooking, right? Depending on the weather or, you know, and even in, in joinery, if you are in a really humid climate. Um, so carpentry, if you're in a really humid climate a really dry climate. Um, so, you know, that's the problem with, um, embodied this kind of um, making knowledge is that it's, it's really hard to write down for a number of reasons. Um, anyway, so, uh, so I realized I had to start working with, um, with, uh, expert casters and metalsmiths in order to come to understand um understand life casting as it was articulated in great detail in great first-hand detail in msfr 640. so um this anonymous text is now available (laughs) um the 16th century anonymous 340-page text, all about different ways of doing things, all about observations of different crafts in the late 16th century, um, observations of daily life, uh, how to make objects of daily life, how to, um, you know, think about a painting, how to make, you know, how to draw, how to... um, how to uh, layer on um, shadows so that you have a lifelike you know, um, portrait of someone. So just an enormous amount of information about uh, techniques and um, different professions or trades in the 16th century. So this is now available as an open access um, digital critical edition. So it includes, you can read it in Facing Pains, and this is what the Making a Knowing Project produced mm-hmm. from 2014 to 2020. Um, it produced this digital critical edition, which can be read like a book. Um, and it um, can you can read it in, you know, transcription on the left and tra- English translation on the right or whatever way you want to read it. They, it has many, many additional um. Uh, ways of navigating this very complex book. We have a whole filtering system. So if you're just interested in animal husbandry, you can find the like 27 entries on animal husbandry of all types, <laughs> like keeping birds. The, uh, the anonymous author practitioner, as we called him, um, is very interested in catching and keeping birds, um, enjoys their songs. Uh, very, very, you know, there are just so many evocative things in it. Um, but it's a very, very practical text and it's very intriguing. You know, why was it written? All of those kinds of questions came up, you know, with force in, in researching that text. Um, so that to your, to the point of your question, uh, are these books available? Yes, you can go in and explore not just the contents of this intriguing text, but also all of our reconstructions of the many, many processes, um, described in it, uh, so the students um, the, for, for six years, you know, graduate students transcribed, translated um, and, and reproduced, reconstructed the techniques, you know, different groups, different workshops, different lab seminars, a huge, huge complex of activities. Um different digital prototyping um, to produce this text. so so they they re in the lab seminar, the graduate students, um, mainly drawn from history, anthropology, literature, literary studies, um, reconstructed, learned to work in a lab. Um, you know, we did eight weeks of skill building with them, and then they started working on one of the um, one of the uh, processes described in the manuscript and then they wrote an essay about it and all of those essays are available they're like almost 130 essays um, available on the as part of the digital critical edition that are keyed to um, different parts of the text in which you can learn about the processes and the trades that are being described in the in the text so it's kind of like a it's a it's a You know, something you can dip into. It's something you could read from back to front or from front to back. Um, It's uh, it's it's a it's actually an incredible historical source and an incredible resource for people who are interested in in the subject of my book about embodied knowledge, about the move to write down crafts, about the context for that. Um, So if you want to have a really vivid, you know, includes videos, includes, you know, well, no interactive parts because we needed to make the platform sustainable. But um, but you have just a wealth of media about embodied knowledge. So if you want to go into that instead of reading my book, um, it's a
1: it's a quite an adventure. (laughs) Mm-hmm. and it's open source you said right it's open it's open access yep mm-hmm. yeah so how do i get to this how, or how how do i direct our readers our listeners to this let me give you the url <laughs> well how about if i uh, i'll get it from you and i'll put it in on the on our website so you can click through to it yeah it's, it's edition640.makingandknowing.org
2: all right edition640.makingandknowing.org yeah
1: That is fabulous. Um, And so ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between and everyone, every beautiful person on the spectrum, um, I will make sure that this is available on our website, as well as the link to direct you to from lived experience to written word. Um, Pamela, thank you so much for taking time to join me today. My pleasure. It was really a a great joy
2: to talk about my book. You know, every author has this moment when they think, "Will anybody really be interested in this?" So, um, and you know that that feeling fades after a while. But um, after the book is first published, you you have this. So you know, to have an to have an intelligent reader interested in the book is just such a pleasure. <coughs>
1: Uh, well i uh, i'm I'm definitely interested hope intelligent uh, and I will not be alone this is this is a wonderful book, and Thank I you. highly recommend that everyone check it out. um you know, you don't even you can just look at the pictures. <laughs> I think the text I, is pretty you
2: worth know, Many people were involved in the production of this book. I hasten to add, and um, the University of Chicago Press just did a, I think, a beautiful job, and I'm very grateful um, for that. And they are beautiful pictures, and I hope that they'll stimulate, you know, the the eyes and the like passions of people for this fascinating period and for. Um. Y- You know, really trying to understand this important human capacity of developing skills of engaging with nature, engaging with natural materials and to really understand the power of that and how much that, you know, grew out
1: of um, grew out of uh, this period. And that is a wonderfully, wonderful place to wrap it up. All right. Thank you very much, Pamela. We'll see each other soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
0: Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in,